Welcome to Grace Church Resources. This is the home of the teaching ministry of Grace Community Evangelical Free Church in Spofford, New Hampshire. Here you will find weekly sermons, special teaching series, testimonies, and much more. If you haven't already subscribed, we encourage you to do so so you will be notified when we post new material. We trust these resources will be a supplement to your regular involvement in a local church wherever you may be, and that by His grace and for His glory, you are looking more like Jesus every day. I'm turning back to Nahum chapter 2, and indeed, uh, this song that we just sang is the end of chapter 1, and it sort of, it's debated as to whether it goes with chapter 2 or chapter 1, and so it's kind of a transitional verse that declares God's nature and how that is good news to see his justice, uh, but there's also the flip side of the good news of his mercy. There is an old adage that goes like this, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. You could add to that another one, pride comes before a fall. Well, those two sayings were certainly true when it comes to God's judgment on the ancient city of Nineveh. In the first chapter of Nahum, we saw the arrogance and the pride of Nineveh in the way that they treated other nations. And in evaluating them, which we are all called to do, we learned of the character of God and perhaps maybe a little bit about our own tainted character. The personal name of God is very clearly used many times in this book, and it is Yahweh. It means I am the eternal one who can be known in a personal way, the name that God chose for himself. We learn that God is a jealous God. He's angry and wrathful. And he cannot let evil go without being opposed. And we also learn that he's good and he's faithful. And he must keep his promises, even the ones that relate to judgment. And so the content of chapter 1 was a prophecy predicting the destruction of Nineveh. So today we're going to look at the rest of the scroll labeled chapters 2 and 3. And these two chapters demonstrate God's justice and goodness as he executes his prophecies. In chapter 2, we're going to receive a detailed description of the fall of Nineveh. And then in chapter 3, we receive the reasons for the fall. And there is an outline in your bulletin. You might want to follow along with this because I'm not going to read every verse. And I would like you to have your Bibles open because, again, I can't read every verse this morning. And so let us look first at the description of God's judgment on Nineveh. Verse 1 says, The scatterer has come up against you. So man your ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. What you need to understand is that the word scatterer is the exact same word in Hebrew used in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, where there it is rendered dispersed, same thing, scatterer or the disperser. And what you must understand, God is the scatterer. And he wants us to remember the Tower of Babel by using this word. You see, it was at that time that the people of the earth were gathering around. It was right after the flood, and God had told Noah to make the people spread out. 
cover the earth, scatter and multiply. But Babel decided they were going to stay in one place, and they said to themselves in Genesis 11, uh, for come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top that goes into heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. See, they were going against God's recommendation. They arrogantly thought that they could keep God from controlling them if they could just all cluster together. It's sort of like the story of Horton Hears a Who. In that delightful little children's story, the Who's of Whoville thought that they could control their destiny if they could just get every last Who to toe the line and say the same thing at the same time and they can control their destiny. The spirit of the age is that if all humanity, or at least Americans, all believed the same thing, we would not have the troubles that we have. And it's those obstinate Christians that oppose everything that's sensible. And if they would just flow with the elite, we could rule the world. I hope you realize that ancient Nineveh was a nation ruled by the elite, and there were no believers to object to what they were doing. The peons had no say whatsoever. There was no national conscience behind things. There was no internal resistance. They had just grown up that way of being mean. God taunts them in verses 1 and 2. This is sarcasm. He says, go ahead. Make my day. Put up your dukes. Man the ramparts. Dress for battle. Do everything you can because you're not going to win. Because I am going to restore the plundered Jacobites. The branch of Jacob that was crushed. You know, grapes were a sign of God, uh, of, of Israel. And they had been crushed by these Ninevites. Verses 3 through 6 describes a new political power that God will use to humble Nineveh. And we know that a combination of Medes and Babylonians attacked Nineveh and sacked the city in 612 BC. God uses other nations to correct nations. A favorite color of the Medes and the Babylonians was red. Now, it might have been that the warriors painted themselves red. It might have been blood from other battles. Some people suggest that it's because they favored copper uh, shields, which are kind of bronze or red, and they, gl they gl gleamed in the sun. Incidentally, one of the reasons why the British Empire w wore red uniforms was so that when a soldier was wounded but not fatally wounded, the enemy could not tell they were hurt because the red blended and they seemed like they were uh, indestructible as they marched uh, forward. And so the color of this enemy was red and they had chariots that had scythes hitched to the hubs and uh, they, they used that to get close to other chariots and cut the wooden spokes apart or to mow people down. This, this, this chariot was like a tank. There was a driver, there was a spear chucker, an archer, and two shield bearers on most of these chariots. They had long spears so that they could fight against other chariots and horses. 
they were protected by these gleaming shields. And they ran through the streets, verse 4, uh, madly through the streets like lightning. You know, for, for that time, these chariots were lightning fast. And here might be a good place to stop for a minute and say something about interpretation. A prophecy enthusiasts uh, strain too much sometimes to try and find fulfillment today in some of these phrases. In fact, years ago there was a movement that interpreters were saying that this was a prophecy about the automobile as it dashes through the streets. And this is why people are skeptical about prophecy teachers. They seem a little fanatical at finding meanings when there is none. Winston Churchill defined a fanatic as one who won't change his mind and won't change the subject. Well, this is a prophecy of the coming destruction of Nineveh, and it has already come true. There's nothing to look for that still needs to be fulfilled at this point. The way that we apply this and get the principles is the simple principle that when God's righteous indignation has been raised, he will use nature and human agency to destroy the evil. This city was literally devastated and destroyed, and he can and will do the same thing today. The principle is still true, but this event was a real event that happened in the past. And so the Babylonians move so quickly that the Ninevites stumble, verse 5. They run to the wall to try and fill the holes, but it's too late because there has been a siege tower set up on the outside by the enemy. And the river gate has been opened and the city has flooded and now the palace is melting away. We, we, look, we saw some of this last time we were together, that the Ninevites controlled the Tigris River and a couple of other tributaries, that they let some of the water in so they had pr- plenty of fresh water, but they controlled the river with gates and so forth. But we understand that there was an extraordinary lot of rain Uh, during that year of 612, and the river flooded more than usual, and the gates couldn't control it, and the enemy got a hold of the gates and opened them up, and two miles of of the wall was washed out by this flood, which allowed the Babylonians to enter and burn the palace, as we saw last week. Now, it's one thing to build on near a river if you're high enough. I mean, the city was 20 feet above the normal flood stage of the Nile. They couldn't predict that God was going to get involved. But it does always made me wonder why people build in New Orleans. 50% of the land is below sea level when there isn't even a problem. They don't have to worry about the 100-year flood. They've got to worry about the every-other-year flood. Anyway, I... Well, the city gets stripped and devoured, verses 7 through 13. The word mistress in verse 7 is better rendered, it is fixed. Uh, That's the literal meaning of the Hebrew word. Uh, Some some people like to think that that's the name of the queen of Nineveh. That's what the King James does. Well, the King James just transliterates the Hebrew word and and makes it look like a proper name, but it means it is fixed, it's done, they're going to be stripped. 
The girls are going to lament because they know they are being captured. And the Assyrians used to strip the captives and humiliate them. And so the captives are crying like doves, beating their breasts. In fact, the moaning of their, their moans sound like doves. And that's why we call them mourning doves, because of the cry of their heart. The city would become a pool and get flooded, verse 8. And everyone would run away, even when they're commanded to come back. Halt, halt, don't run. Stand your, stand your ground. But the confidence of the people is shattered. And so the city would be plundered. And for years, Nineveh would plunder the riches of every other nation they conquered. And they would make people slaves. And, and then have those, the very people carry all of their treasure back to their city. And they stored it. They were the richest city on earth. If any city had streets of gold, it was Nineveh. Their riches had no end. But the Medes and the Babylonians plundered it. And they are so thorough. Verse 10 says, desolation and ruin. Desolation and ruin, is, it's a fascinating phrase in the Hebrew. It's called an onomatopoeia. It, it, when you read it, you can hear the sound of a bottle emptying. Just listen. Buka amivuka amibavuka. You know, that's what destruction, destruction and ruin means. It's, it's on purpose that they're, the city is being tipped upside down and they're being emptied and shaken out like a bottle. And you can hear it in the words. All their faces grew pale, and they probably thought if Nineveh could fall, nobody is secure. And by the way, that's, that's what you're supposed to be thinking. That's a good question to ask yourself. Who can stand against this kind of thing? That's one of the purposes of Nahum. Is anything secure if it opposes God? You should be petrified. There's no safe place to hide from Yahweh. He's everywhere and always has been. Verse 11 asks, where's the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where's the lion and the lioness? The safest place on earth would have been inside the king's palace. It was the most protected place where all his children were. But God himself walked into the lion's den and destroyed everything. The Ninevites took the lion as their symbol because they were the head of the food chain, you see. But God marched right in. He said, I am against you. Can you imagine having that said to you? That God is against you? What a terrifying phrase. But God is against all who stand against him and the objects of his love. Where do you stand? What is his reason for this judgment? Chapter 3 answers that question. Verses 1 through 7 indicates that Nineveh deserves God's judgment because of her crimes. He says, woe unto you, judgment, alas, finally, justice is coming. It's a bloody city. It's a city full of lies and plunder. Everyone is considered prey in, in the eyes of the city. There was no desire to do good to others. Their whole lifestyle was to use people for their good. They were oppressors. 
Everyone was just a pawn to them. They weren't really human. Slavery was rampant. The Assyrians were notorious for their cruelty. They would cut off hands and feet and noses and gouge out eyes. They would peel people's skin. And I don't need to go on. But they were so rich, they wanted more. They had enough. Their stores were unending. But if you were to ask them, like you ask some rich people, how much more do you need? Just a little more. Just a little more. This time, verse 2 says, they'll be the prey. The whip of oppression will be against them. The power of the military will be used against them. Like a tank, the chariots will leap over heaps of corpses to get to the king's lion's den. Literally, they, they walked over dead bodies to accomplish the destruction of this city. And though this is a real scene that happened, there is an obvious allusion to the condition of hell, where every day will be like that. Unfortunately, we have defanged God in our modern age, and people who rebel against God should be afraid of him. If, if you are actively rebelling against God this moment, you should be afraid of his justice. Many years ago, on a Sunday night, I dressed up like Jonathan Edwards and preached his sermon, the whole 45-minute sermon of sinners in the hands of an angry God. I think I might do it again someday. It was a sermon preached in 1741 that sparked the Great Awakening in colonial America right in our own backyard, Northampton. And part of the sermon said this. This is just a paragraph. I'm not doing the whole 45. <laughs> he said, The use of this awful subject, meaning hell, may be for awakening unconverted persons in this very congregation. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. The world of misery, the lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad underneath you. There is a dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There's hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon, not anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It's only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. He then went on later and he said, what separates sinners from hell is like a spider web. You're standing on a spider web. One more step and you'll fall through. You see, we avoid this subject, but frankly, there can be no repentance if you don't know what you're being saved from. You have to know that there is retribution, eternal retribution. And so we're not fooling around here. We're not just telling stories. This is not just a fairy tale. We're not pretending that we're some sort of special group of people that's going to change the world for better by all the good things that we do. We are here primarily to warn people of what is, what is to come and to declare how you can be delivered from the wrath to come. You don't have to remain banished. And so we're here, verse 4, to warn the nations not to do what Nineveh did. 
Verse 4 calls her a prostitute because she enticed the world to follow her spiritually corrupt ways rather than to follow the God of the universe. The whoring mentioned here is not sexual, but is a metaphor for spiritual corruption of idolatry. Nineveh changed the affection of all the nations around to worship their gods. She played a harlot in that sense, enticing people to rest upon their power, their strength. An example of it is when King Ahaz of Judah approached Assyria because he wanted, to, he wanted more money for his country. And so he was enticed and, and they, they treated him well until they showed up and started fighting and taking away everything that they could. He was duped. She came to destroy. The pagan worship of the Assyrians involved occultism, sexual perversion, human trafficking, and these practices resulted in the enslavement of almost every known nation on the face of the earth. And so as a harlot favors, dispenses favors for hire, Nineveh sold people's trust to false gods rather than the true God. Remember Rabshikah we talked about last week? He came to the king Hezekiah and said, don't trust in your Yahweh. He's going to let you down. Look at our gods. Look at all we have. If you want to be successful, worship our gods. If you want material success and, uh, to be successful, follow us, not that prudish god that asks so much of you. Live for the moment. Stop denying yourself. Join us. We can help you if you just submit to our rulership. And so God gives his sentence in verse 5 of chapter 3. He'd had enough. He said, Behold, I am against you once again. I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Again, the sin is spiritual harlotry, but the punishment is likened to physical harlotry. You see, often a physical harlot was not all that pretty. They dolled themselves up. They painted themselves, and they operated at night when you couldn't see none too good. And when you're drunk, it kind of helped, too. <laughs> so when she was caught, she was exposed, and it wasn't, a sec it wasn't a lustful thing. It was, look, there's nothing there. It's all paint. It's all pretend. In the light of day, she's as ugly as homemade sin. Verse 6 says, I'll throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. God is just paying back what she has done to everybody out. Nahum's picture is that of God covering them with, with this filth. And when the skirts are lifted, the shame is shown. People won't want to be with her because they'll see what she's really like, her core. God is against every kind of person who disregards the innocent and lives only for self. That's the epithet of Nineveh. Who's going to grieve, he says, verse 7. Isn't it sad when nobody shows up for a funeral? I've done many funerals, and this past week was a great celebration of a guy that was well-loved. But isn't it sad when you go to a funeral and there's only five people 
Nobody's going to grieve for this, this city because she is bloody and lying. But there's another thing that she did that she gets judged for, and it's found in the rest of the chapter, verses 8 through 19, an argument that's very important to the book but hard to follow at times. It says, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her and her rampart, a sea and water, her, her wall? Thebes is brought forth as a witness against Assyria. You see, uh, the Hebrew behind Thebes is Noamon, which the King James renders this. But Thebes was the capital of southern Egypt, way down on, on the Nile. The Nile was, went through Thebes just like the Tigris went through Nineveh. They were, they were similar in that regard. And then uh, Thebes had natural uh, allies through Cush and Put and Libyans. In other words... North, south, east, and west, she was surrounded by allies. She had the power of the river. She was far stronger than Assyria. But Assyria bested her. See, Nineveh didn't have these kind of things. Nobody was on her side. She was on a plain rather than a, a high spot. And yet in her weakness, she was able to crush a superior Society. Thebes was the city of the kings of the pharaohs. They had been living for a thousand years with prosperity, and Assyria came in and crushed them. Yes, God used Assyria to crush Thebes. But when he does that, it doesn't mean they are not going to be recompensed for what they did. And now their turn is coming. You will also be drunken and you will go into hiding and you will seek a refuge from the enemy. The same fate that fell Thebes on Thebes will fall on Nineveh. Verse 12 describes the ease of her fall. It says, all your fortresses are like fig trees with fir first ripe figs. And if shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. <laughs> the figs were so ripe that just, just shaking them, they would fall. It's sort of like, you know, this time of the year, the raspberry plants have gone by. Or the raspberries have gone by and what's left on it, if you shake it, it just, it just falls to the ground. It's ready to be judged. Nineveh's fortifications will fall like fruit that's rotten. Verse 13 indicates that they would prove defenseless and vulnerable and fear, become fearful as women. The men were acting like women. You know, I have a feeling God would not be all that in favor of the modern women's liberation movement. But men are supposed to act like men, and women are supposed to act like women. And the lack of trust in the true God changes how we act as men and women. That's a whole other issue. With irony, verse 14, Nahum urged the Ninevites, draw plenty of water, make sure you take care of yourself, make sure that you can put out the fires, go ahead, work the clay, patch up the walls, repair what you have. This is all sarcasm. It's not going to work. So go ahead and try as hard as you want. Verse 15, there, there will the fire devour you, the sword will cut you off, it will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourself like the locust, multiply like the grasshopper. Try to increase your strength all you want, but it's not going to work. 
And it can be seen by the exodus of the merchants in verse 16. The merchants are going to disappear. You see, when there is trouble on the horizon, businessmen are smart enough to see that things are caving in. And so they left. It's sort of like what's happening on our coastal, the coastal part of our country. Everybody's moving to the center. Because they see the writing on the wall. And by the way, this is a sign that some Ninevites are going to be still around to be saved someday. Isaiah chapter 19 says that the, the Assyrians will be uh, a part of God's future kingdom. So this, they aren't all wiped out at this point. It's just the leadership that's wiped out. And not only that, uh, your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like the clouds of locusts. They settle on a fence in the cool of the day, but when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. In other words, they're here until things get hot, <laughs> and then they scram. And so the common people are gone. The shepherds of verse 18 is a reference to Nineveh's leaders. The leadership of the nation has disintegrated. They were not leading, and they were leading wrongly when they were. And verse 19 says, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? In other words, those who knew Nineveh best are clapping their hands <clears throat> that she is being destroyed. They're even asking for an encore because it is so well-deserved. It's truly praiseworthy to hear about evil being ended. And we should want a God who isn't cowed and isn't sitting around and upset about all the injustice of the world. We want a God who is defeating injustice and who will crush it. And you should never apologize for God's justice and his avenging hand. Don't you hate this book? Don't you love this book? Have we wasted our time studying this? Well, the reasons God brought Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire down are the same reasons he will humble any nation who abuses innocent people. Any nation, city, or individual that practices violence and worships anyone but God shares in Nineveh's sins and can expect her fate. It's hard not to look around at the world and see how they worship things rather than God who created all those things. You don't even have to be a critical person to see it. God holds the nations accountable, including ours. I mean, I love America, but I don't love what's happening to America. All of us can look back over our lifetimes and see the changes that have occurred. You don't have to be very old. Truth is backwards. Isaiah 5.20 could be the banner strung across our nation. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Today, America thinks they have enough weapons and special geographical features that they can defend themselves. But I'm telling you, our best defense as a nation is to return to God. This is a wake-up call for America. 
we're only a couple hundred years old and we've already deserted our founding principles. I mean, it's disturbing when we calculate and realize that millions of babies have been aborted. It's disturbing that kids can't be safe in school for fear of a massacre. And it's not the guns that do it. It, you, You realize in the 1960s, there was a gun club in Chesterfield and on Thursdays, every eighth grader was, was told to bring their rifles on the school bus because there was a club on gun safety. And nobody killed each other. It's not the guns are the problem. It's that there's no respect for human life anymore, starting with the insensitivity towards abortion. We live in a time when there's a lack of respect for authorities. We live in a time when any kind of philosophy or weird idea is to- tolerated and supported in, our ed- in education except Christianity. Preachers are forbidden to preach about immorality and people can pick whatever gender they like instead of the one that God ordained them with. So God gave this message to Judah because he knew she needed to be comforted. And so he gives it to us as well. And what comforted Judah was the knowledge that God was going to make everything right. The solution to this upside-down world is the Lord. These conditions make us look forward to the Lord's return. Even so, come. However, we should not just shrink back and just wait for him to come. We should be on our knees begging for revival in this nation because we're all in this together. We're all affected by what the nation's doing. That's the whole point. A man wanted to impress on his young teens that a little compromise with sin, a little yielding to temptation can make you unclean and guilty. And so he baked a a batch of brownies and, and just as the kids were about to eat them and chomp down on them, he stopped them. And he told them that he had added just a dab of doggy doo. <laughs> and with a gag, they threw the, cook, the, the brownies down and said, Dad, why did you do that? And he replied, I wanted to show you that even a small bit of impurity ruins the whole batch. Which is why I don't like brownies either. But, <laughs> but before we get too haughty about seeing the imperfections of our nations, we should look a little closer at ourselves as individuals. If we are truly honest, we have to admit that there are aspects of our national character that rub off on us. We can become critical and condemn others for their false worship, but if we don't see our own priorities are not what they should be, we're, we're just Pharisees. God is the same today as he was in Nahum's day. The same God who protected Israel is protecting you. He doesn't want to destroy. He's giving every chance to repent. Have you taken advantage of that chance? We see in the stories of Jonah and Nahum that with every new generation, the necessity of individual response to God is key. No one's spiritual life can be handed off to another. You are responsible for your response to God, and you can't blame your nation or your parents or your church. Once when Calvin Coolidge was vice president of the Senate, 
vice president and he was the president of the Senate. An altercation arose between two senators and tempers flared and one senator told the other senator to go straight to hell. Well, the offended senator stormed from his seat and stood before the table of Coolidge and he said, Mr. President, he said, did you hear what that man said to me? And Coolidge looked up from the book that he was reading and he said calmly, well, you know, I've been looking through the rule book, and you don't have to go. (laughs) God's judgment is certain, but so is his mercy. That's what we need to lead this book with. You don't have to go to hell, and you can experience everlasting life. Choice is up to you. Who can stand before a sovereign creator like this? Who can stand before his just judgment and his fierce anger? The answer is nobody, not one of us in this room, nor anybody on the face of the earth. We need somebody to stand for us. And that's what the New Testament's all about. Jesus Christ, loved the Father loved us so much, he sent his son Jesus Christ to stand for us at his judgment seat. And when he died upon the cross, he took your sins upon himself. But you have to relate to that. You have to receive that. And so your personal relationship to the personal God, Yahweh, is the most important application of this book. This book's meant to comfort us. That God doesn't let evil go unpunished. And yet, he is merciful and he can take our evil off us. He placed your sin upon Christ. Will you receive him this moment? Maybe you can pray with me. Dear God, I know that I am lost. I know that I am sinful before you. And I place my trust in you, not in everything else, but in you. Please save my soul. How will you respond? Dennis Fisher wrote a poem. He said, Your mercy, Lord, how great it is to overrule our sin. So help us know your righteousness and choose to walk therein. We have asked the question of you to look at others to see what what they worship. And I did that on purpose. What do they worship? What is first in their lives? What are their priorities? I hope what happens by you asking this question is that it makes you immediately ask, what do I worship? That's that's the bigger question. What is is first in my life? And, And how do you make God first? Matthew 22, 37 gives us our priorities. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's where you gotta start, people. I pray that your desire will be to grow stronger in your love of the Lord this year. We have a great opportunity coming. September starts the church year, so to speak, where all our discipleship and training is up. Prayer times are more vibrant. And so I pray that you would commit yourself to one another, to the church, to the Lord. Pray that your heart will see the Lord first, that the study of the word and fellowship and prayer are your priorities. And then we can be people who have beautiful feet declaring the mercy of the Lord from the hilltops. Because what we believe does change our lives. So let's pray.
Father, now we ask that we would rejoice with you as we declare what we believe in song, and that it would sink down into our hearts and not just our heads, and that we will never be the same. Amen. We trust this resource was a blessing to you. You might also be interested in our other podcast, Grounding Our Faith, which is an interview-style conversation with staff, church leaders, and members about issues of theology and everyday faith. Grace Church Resources and Grounding Our Faith are both ministries of Grace Community Evangelical Free Church in Spofford, New Hampshire.